0: Welcome to the Diet Doctor Podcast with Dr. Brett Schur. Today it's my pleasure to be joined by Dr. John Lemansky, Biohacker MD. Now, John's story is a story that's not that uncommon. He uh, he was very healthy and active and competing in triathlons or at least he thought he was healthy. And then he found out, maybe not so, that he was actually pre-diabetic and this was in his 20s, so pretty young for that to happen. And that set him on this course of becoming a biohacker, which. He'll define for us because it has a lot of different terms, but basically he learned how to use nutrition to heal himself and then tried to use that as a doctor to heal others and it's a fascinating journey that he's had. Uh, so I hope you appreciate his story and along the way we're going to pick up some tips about how we can incorporate this uh, his lessons into our lives uh, to make things easier. And what it means to be a biohacker, what that means for nutrition and for sun exposure and when that can go a little too far. Because I think that's really important to keep in reference that a lot of the things we see in terms of biohacking are expensive and of questionable utility. So John's going to help us kind of figure some of that out and figure out how to evaluate that. So it was a great discussion. Uh, we also talked about families and kids which is near and dear to my, to my heart. So I hope you enjoy this discussion with Dr. John Lemanski. <laughs> Dr. John Lemansky, welcome to the Diet Doctor podcast. Thanks yeah. so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you for having me. It's yeah, an it's, honor.
0: It's my pleasure to have you here. So your story is unfortunately a story that's not that uncommon nowadays. Someone right. who prioritizes their health, is busy in their life, is taking care of themselves and a triathlete, and yet finds out despite being in med school, mm-hmm. competing in triathlons, you're not that healthy.
1: Yeah, Yeah. Scary.
0: Tell me a little bit about that discovery and what that meant for you.
1: Well, like you said, I mean it wasn't a weight issue with me. It was a question of I'm following what the guidelines are in terms of dietary, I'm exercising probably more than I should be and, you know, I'm relatively thin and yet the question is, uh, I checked my lab work and and the lab work was hemoglobin A1C, fasting insulin and obviously just your basic uh, chemistry. I found that my insulin level was very high um, my hemoglobin A1c was relatively normal, but still, I was showing signs of insulin resistance just based on uh, my fasting insulin score. Yeah. And so the question to me was, as a medical student, I think I know everything. You know, I'm young, I'm healthy, I'm doing all the the right things that I've been told, and yet these labs are not showing, are not reflecting that. And that was pretty scary. That was pretty eye-opening to me at the time. So I wanted to see well why is this, what what can it be, is it genetic, is it dietary, am I exercising too much, which could be a possibility, Um, and really got led down the path of no, it's actually what I'm eating that's driving most of, of these lab abnormalities. And it was beyond just the lab abnormalities, it was also how I felt. Mm-hmm. And so I'm sure you can remember back when you were a medical student but um you know you're always tired and you th- think well it's probably because I'm studying all the time. Right. But that never got better and it was a question of how can I be so exhausted all the time and yet you know I'm young I'm healthy I'm fit um and there must be an answer to that question.
0: So what were you eating at that time? Was it the The standard American diet was it processed foods and chips and sodas, or was it healthy whole grains and fruits, or like what was the mix? No,
1: it was mostly healthy whole grains, a lot of fruit, quote unquote healthy. healthy, Mm -hmm. Right, a lot of quinoa, you know, pasta, bread, uh, a lot of fruits, a lot of vegetables. Really, no fast food. So it wasn't a fast food. It wasn't processed food. Maybe. You know, kind of your uh, healthy processed food. Right. So your whole foods kind of um, processed food that you think is healthy, but it's not. Right. Because it's still, if you look at the container and you look at the ingredients, I mean, most of the ingredients are going to be some form of sugar initially, but you know, very little protein. So I was more in the kind of pescatarian, Mm -hmm. or uh, not too much protein and essentially no fat. And if I was eating fat, it was from, you know, olive oil, olives, and things like that but otherwise I was pretty much bored of fat.
0: And this was in your 20s, yeah. basically in medical school. Mm-hmm. So that's what I think so interesting for you, it seems like it's much earlier than the average person we've heard of this happening Correct. to. Correct. Yeah, so maybe there is a genetic component to it to suggest when it's going to affect us and for you it was earlier, but that kind Correct. of diet certainly can affect anybody at any time.
1: Yeah, and I think also you have to take into account Some of the other factors at that time. So, Mm -hmm. obviously, studying, being up all night, so stress response to being in medical school, being up, you know, uh, the stress of that also was probably playing a role now that I look back. But um, I still think, you know, genetically and and dietary was the the main cause of of that.
0: And this was like 15 years ago. Yeah. And so, from there, was your first intervention a ketogenic diet to help reverse that, or did you have steps along the way?
1: So there wasn't much information about keto at yeah. that time, I mean it was right. quite a long time ago. Um, Atkins was kind of in that rebirth phase at the time. Uh started reading about Atkins, I had known a few people who had tried it, you know, had great weight loss success. Um, I was a biochemistry major in, in college and so going back to the biochemistry and understanding okay, how are you actually processing the macronutrients, what's the process that's actually happening, Atkins seemed to be a little bit more in the line of, okay, this is going to be healthier just based on simple biochemistry. Um, I didn't like so much the the amount of protein that I was consuming based on that. If you remember I went from pescatarian, really like 30 grams of protein maybe a day. Wow! So pretty light on the protein, pretty, pretty, pretty high on the exercise, and mm-hmm. so that probably was not a good combination. Um, but going to much higher levels of protein I didn't feel as good. Um, and then just kind of researching, going to PubMed, going to the library at the time, you know, Google wasn't uh, a big search engine like it is now, and looking at the the research studies that were out there at the time about keto. It just uh, made more sense from a physiological level. So I started kind of transitioning into more of a ketogenic, uh, low-carb I would say initially um, because I still do like vegetables. Um, and then as time has progressed and now we have ways of really measuring you know, blood ketones, breath ketones, uh, glucose—much easier. Um, I've kind of transitioned into going into ketosis quite exclusively, and then maybe coming out once in a while, um, but doing more of a low carb. Yeah, yeah. So it's a process. I think like most people experience. It's not get it right the first time. Well, and
0: what's so interesting is you—you're sort of like the perfect person for that to happen to because you're in medical school, because you had some knowledge, and you're the type of person who wants to dig into things deeper and you're the self-experimenter. So that's sort of like sort of kicked off, it sounds like that kicked off your end of one experimentation that, yeah. that you've yeah. continued to keep up with. Right? Correct,
1: yeah. I'm always interested in kind of pushing the limit of our understanding of things, regardless if it's, you know, sports or health. Um, So yeah, I agree, it's probably a perfect match in that sense. Right,
0: and then to talk about your your medical career, so from there you went to be a hospitalist in Mississippi, like the the heart of the obesity and diabetes epidemic, and I'm sure you just saw some horrendous things in the hospital that could have been prevented but weren't.
1: Correct, yeah, so I did internal medicine and um, my goal... I was young, idealistic, I thought I would change you know, the world uh, in terms of health. Um, I had this understanding of what it could do for me just on a, a physiological level and I had an understanding of what other people who were using it were experiencing in terms of you know, getting off of diabetic medications, blood pressure medications. So I figured go to the worst state in the country where it's a problem that is I think worse than just the statistics would show. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is devastating in the South. Yeah. and now really the rest of the country. But one of the, the main factors in terms of risk factors for most things is age, right? And so if a 20-year-old comes in complaining of chest pain, you're not going to run to the cath lab on that patient. Now if a 50-year-old is, well, you might think a little bit more in terms of doing that. In the South, we would see you know, MIs in people in their 20s, their 30s, people on dialysis, people um, who would have cardiomyopathies with EF of 10% mm-hmm. with maybe obviously genetics is an issue, but really no other factor that we can look at and say this is what's driving this. And so that experience was eye opening in the sense that I saw the worst possible outcome of everything that you and I are discussing and at a, at a very young age. Yeah. And so we're in a situation now where we talk about healthcare for everybody, should we not have obamacare, should we have some new form of healthcare? But the question that I think is never raised is how are we going to manage chronic medical diseases which are starting at such a young age and trying to maintain health and you know happiness for for those people. Right. So that experience I think um was eye-opening in many ways.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. For some people, I think it could be incredibly depressing and make you sort of want to give up. And for other people, it would be empowering yep. to say, "How can I fix this?" And so, luckily for you, it seems like it was the latter.
1: Well, I think you get frustrated, especially if you have patients that you see over and over. And obviously, in a hospital setting, uh, we don't have follow-up. We don't see patients in the clinic. But I would see, you know, repeat patients come back within a few days of being discharged with really no change in their underlying condition. We just happen to tune them up perfectly with the right combination of medications and then you know four days later they're right back. And so you get into this question of is that futility of care, um, is there a better option, is there a way to maybe prevent these things from happening and should the focus be on that? And for me it was kind of a a no-brainer at that point. I felt like I could make more of a difference By preventing what I was seeing in the hospital, than necessarily just treating it after the fact.
0: And it's an interesting word you use, tune up, and we use that a lot. (laughs) You know, sort of like for car mechanics, just tuning things up, not fixing a problem, not reversing a problem, just tuning it up. And that that is the the words we use matter, and it reflects our our philosophy. And for a lot of doctors, that's the philosophy. Well, it's
1: frustrating. I think Um, it's extremely frustrating because, um, you know, how good of medical care is that? Where you're yeah. just tuning people up versus right. actually really getting down to the root cause and addressing that and then watching those symptoms that are presenting kind of you know disappear.
0: So then you have this dramatic transformation from yeah. a hospitalist seeing these types of patients to having more of a one on one I guess you could call it concierge, or that comes with different connotations, but right. a one on one personalized approach um with, with patients mm-hmm. and frequently using a ketogenic diet Correct. in those patients to help their health. Now, do you use a ketogenic diet in pretty much everybody or how do you you know how do you approach that and how do you evaluate them to see what the diet is that's best for them for their situation
1: yeah great question I think you'll you see in the conferences uh, this push towards individualization so everybody is a different based on their genetic factors based on their lab markers kind of what their goals are I think nutrition is uh, essential uh, to everybody changing whether it's going from you know, a processed fast food diet to just eating real food. I think people will have tremendous success in reversing a lot of their markers. Um, for me, it's a question of what is the goal of the person? So keto or low carb, I would say, is is ubiquitous for the patient population that I take care of initially and to stratify based on um, how metabolically sick they are. And so I think um, I think Gary Tobbs put the slide up yesterday about this sensitivity to insulin and everybody has kind of a threshold in terms of how many carbohydrates they can consume before they really kind of push the insulin level back up. Same thing happens with the patients that I take care of, it's really figuring out first what is their threshold. So are they metabolically sick, do they have diabetes, which a lot do, do they have insulin resistance, a lot do, Um, do they have high blood pressure. So do, do they have risk factors? that need to be addressed I think more uh, aggressively initially, then they'll be ketogenic to begin with. And then eventually it's a question of can you transition back into more of a low-carb because I don't think everybody needs to be in strict ketosis all the time. But I do think it's an extremely powerful tool to be used for specific situations.
0: Right, and that makes a lot of sense. Certainly if you're treating diabetes, if you're treating insulin resistance, the further you can go on the spectrum the better you're going to treat it. Right, But at some point people want to change sometimes sure. you know some people love being in ketosis they feel better they mm-hmm. think better and they never want to do anything differently some people sort of miss some of the lifestyle they had before and yeah. want to find a happy medium so what do you you use in your practice to decide is somebody quote unquote ready for that and then how do you follow them do you do you know oral glucose tolerance tests is it based on their insulin levels right. their a1c or what kind of tools do you use
1: so the first thing before we even talk about how to transition, I would say um, a good way to kind of keep people in this situation where they want to stay in ketosis or they want to be pretty restrictive is making it um, applicable to kind of their cultural uh, situation. So, for instance, in the South, you know, barbecue, um, you know, drinking is is going to be a big kind of social gathering factor, and so trying to figure out how do you actually make Low carb keto um, accessible to people who want to stay in those situations. Yeah. And there's tricks that you can use. But let's say, you know, just from a clinical perspective, if somebody wants to transition from keto to low carb, a couple things I'll look at. So I don't really like the oral glucose tolerance test. I do like it with combination with the insulin test. So I think that gives you a lot more information. So doing a fasting insulin, doing the glucose tolerance test, doing the insulin test to see. Number one, is fasting insulin suppressed in general? Obviously we want that. But number two, what is the response? So if they're still having an exaggerated response, then their threshold of carbohydrate intake is probably going to be much lower than somebody who has a normal physiological response. So using that, obviously using metrics like hemoglobin A1C is important, blood pressure measurements, um, you know, ESRP or high sensitivity CRP, things like that. But the main ones I would say are have they reached their goal in terms of what they're trying to accomplish? Um, do they have an abnormal response to that test? Um, what is their fasting insulin? Yeah. Things like that.
0: And so a lot of people will say, I want to be ketogenic to lose weight. Right. And once I hit my weight goal, okay, I'm I'm all right and I'm going to back off a little bit. So what's your thoughts on weight as a metric versus some of these other metrics you mentioned?
1: Yeah, I hate weight as a metric. <laughs> it's probably the, one of my biggest pet peeves. I tell people weigh themselves one time initially, um, and I prefer things like DEXA scan, or you know BodyPod to get an actual uh, BMI or lean body mass perspective. What's the visceral fat? Um, because that to me is much more important. We're looking at getting rid of visceral fat. Obviously, some subcutaneous fat, fatty liver disease. We're looking at trying to reverse those things. So I tell people, you know. Weigh yourself initially and then don't weigh yourself for a month. Inevitably I find that most people come to keto because they want to lose weight. Mm-hmm. That's the number one driving factor and it makes sense. But most people as they transition and they start noticing things are getting better. So, you know, their joints don't hurt, they don't have headaches, you know they're not frequently hungry, they're sharper, they're more cognitively sharp. Inevitably that becomes really the driving factor I think for most people to, to want to stay right um or at least to kind of transition in and out um so but in terms of answering your question you know everybody has a weight goal that they want to get to i use body fat percentage as a better metric and i try to encourage the people i take care of to use that as their metric right. you know how's your visceral fat uh, responding to what we're doing how's the body fat percentage responding and so if we get down to the goal body fat percentage visceral fat is gone lab markers are uh, back to normal then yeah, I think it's a, a very reasonable question to say. Well, let's um, try some different things. Let's expand your carbohydrate. You know, I think Andreas showed very nicely that you know in the ketogenic community we also have given carbohydrates a bad a bad name, and they're not necessarily bad. Um, you know, obviously highly processed um, ones are going to be detrimental to our health, but yeah. incorporating healthy vegetables, I think, is uh, perfect. A way to kind of transition.
0: Right. Diet diet's a tool and you yeah. gotta use the right the right diet for the right job, basically. That makes mm-hmm. sense. And then of course, when we talk about the food we eat, we also have to talk about the timing of we eat right. of eating and kind of what we don't eat. So time restricted eating, intermittent fasting gained a lot of popularity, although right. it's something that's been around forever, basically. <laughs> right. Um, right. So what what's your stages of helping people using that to benefit their health?
1: Yeah. Uh, you know, we like to make the old uh, or old new again and we take concepts that I think have been used for uh, generations and then bring them back and say, look at this new thing. But you know, ancestrally, I mean, it, it's how we essentially lived. Taking somebody who's on a Western diet and saying, okay, we're going to get you in ketosis, we're going to fast for five days, you'll probably lose that person for the rest of their life. They're never going to do that again. Yeah. So. Initially, I think my approach is change your diet, so change it from what you're eating to low-carb to keto, get adapted, get fat adapted, actually make the enzymes that you need and then start incorporating some other factors like time-restrictive feeding, intermittent fasting, um, you know, longer-term fast. because I think that's an extremely powerful way of really suppressing insulin. Um, Plus I think there's a lot of people who will reach a threshold where they just cannot break through that kind of plateau. And incorporating something like uh, intermittent fasting tends to help tremendously. Yeah.
0: You know what's so interesting is people talk about their stalls or their plateaus, mm-hmm. usually again with weight, right? but we can say the, see the same things whether it's hemoglobin A1C or glucose tolerance Correct. and fasting seems to work for that as well.
1: Correct, yeah, yeah, and it makes sense because you're really again going to the root cause which is insulin being elevated So really trying to suppress that as much as possible. Plus uh, what I find interesting at this time is that the research that's going on to kind of support these uh, claims is also extremely powerful. So looking at studies that show that you actually need to have periods of time where you're not eating to activate enzymes needed to do beta-oxidation. It makes sense that you're actually going to be able to deplete your glycogen store to some degree Start beta oxidation, and so you know we use obviously people use weight as metric, but that's the reason is you're actually going to the underlying cause and addressing it. Um, and for most people, I think it's pretty simple to do a intermittent fast, especially if you do it, you know, early dinner, late breakfast. It makes perfect sense for most people to be able to do that.
0: Yeah, one of the interesting concepts about intermittent fasting um, or time restricted eating and the body's natural circadian rhythm is to try and do them in tune. But what I find is that goes against sort of our social constructs. The traditional intermittent fast is to skip breakfast or have a late breakfast and then have dinner because that's what fits more with our society. You want to have dinner with the kids and the family, dinner is a social outing. But it seems like our circadian rhythm would say the other way, we should have the breakfast and skip the dinner. So how do you balance that with your patients?
1: Yeah, that's a great question and um, I think Marty Kendall down in Australia, is doing a lot of independent research about the timing of food and his argument would be that, yeah, you actually, from a physiological perspective, should be eating breakfast as your main meal. Um, The way that I kind of make the argument is you're giving yourself a period of time where you're not consuming calories. Um, For me, I do it this way where I eat dinner and then during the day I don't eat much and I do it because I want to have dinner with the children. So I think in the the big scheme in terms of all the different things that you're going to do to improve your health, if the timing of your main meal is really the deciding factor, then I think we've probably gone overboard. Um, So I would say, uh, and I know I'm kind of hedging on this question, but um, I would say if it's going to allow you to do it and dinner is the best way because you want to have family interaction, then I would do it that way if you don't have that let's say you're you know single or you have a girlfriend or you don't have this kind of idea that you have to eat dinner as a family then yeah i think eating in the morning is perfectly fine
0: yeah and i don't think that's a hedging answer i mean i think that's a great yeah. answer you don't want perfect to be the enemy of good basically right, right. and even if our our insulin sensitivity is worse in the evening because of the circadian rhythm the main goal is having the space between between your meals Correct. and whatever it needs to accomplish that is the good and then if you can do perfect, great, if not, you make it fit in your life.
1: Yeah. And interestingly enough too, I think um, for people who are, are kind of type A and, and have to do a lot of work during the day, I find myself personally that if I eat a very heavy meal for breakfast and make that the main meal, I'm actually quite lethargic for a good portion of the morning, which is when I do most of my work. Right. So I find it for me, because I'm fasting most of the night, um, you know, I have high ketone levels, I feel very, very sharp when I wake up, I know I sound monotone, but this is me being sharp. <laughs> so, um, uh, but this is me awake, and, and so for me it works well in that sense. And a lot of people that I work with, they're also you know pretty active in the morning, and so it works well for them. Right, it makes a lot of sense.
0: So now you've you've been known as a keto hacker and a biohacker, and biohacking is a term that gets used quite a lot lately, and it has different connotations for different people, and it can mean a lot of different things. Some not so uh, pleasant to be honest and some pretty basic. And a lot of the biohacking I hear you talk about seems rather simplistic, but I want I want to hear you kind of define how you see the term biohacking and how you use it to help yourself and your patients.
1: Yeah, great question. Um, so I define biohacking as making the environment work for you instead of against you. Which is pretty simple concept, you know. I think on one extreme you have biohacking, which does have a bad connotation in a way because some people are maybe pushing it a little bit too far, injecting themselves with you know isotracers or, or doing uh, stem cell injections, which maybe don't have the scientific backing um, yet. But on the other hand, there are simple lifestyle modifications that are still, I think, to be considered biohacking and those are the ones that I focus on. You know, you and I as clinicians will talk to our patients about diet and exercise, but I don't think we necessarily, and I don't want to speak for you, but we don't necessarily go into depth in terms of what that means. So we'll just say, you know, kind of blanket statement, okay, make sure you do diet and exercise, but what does that actually mean? What are some of the simple uh, cost-effective really lifestyle modifications that you can do which actually from a biohacking standpoint um, impact your health tremendously? Right. probably even more so than maybe some of the more extreme um, kind of forms of biohacking. And I don't have anything against certain techniques like you know hyperbaric oxygen chambers, uh, certain other kind of more advanced biohacking techniques that are being used, but the question really becomes how can you apply those to a majority of people? You know, can you spend $40 a session in a cryo chamber well, most people will say, "Yeah, I can do that once, but I can't do that on a regular basis, so then, what's right. the benefit of of having that um and so, I really define biohacking as what are the things that you can do to improve your health, affect yourself from a metabolic standpoint positively, and do it cost effectively
0: right, like getting out in the sun yep. and getting more sunshine I mean yes. in some circles, that's considered biohacking in some circles is considered common sense it's <laughs> right. what everybody should be right. doing right? should be.
1: yeah but then you look you know EPA came out with a um, a statistic that said 90% of our our life is spent indoors yeah so yes it sounds simplistic it sounds like common sense and yet we're not doing it and so the question becomes you know how do you do it how do you do it effectively with from a time management perspective because we're all strapped for time and then do it without having to spend you know thousands of dollars on on some gizmo right and so, simple things like going outside in the morning and getting sun exposure, getting actually activation of your SCN, getting your circadian rhythm back in order, I think is extremely important. Focusing on sleep is extremely important. I just did an experiment where I worked five nights as a hospitalist. Haven't worked nights, and I don't um, don't remember when. I don't want to remember when right. to see what's going to be the metabolic impact. And so, in five days, gained seven pounds, not changing anything dietary. Really. So Maintained, you know, my normal kind of fasting routine just changed the timing, so there was an impact. So I was eating at night. Uh, Fasting glucose was 15 points higher. Hmm. So part of that is probably because of the timing of the eating, but um, and then sleep pattern was horrible. So sleep has a huge effect on our ability to be metabolically, uh, you know, healthy. Right. Um, So simple things like that, I think, are extremely effective.
0: Yeah. So I mean, shift workers are a huge problem in this country, and a lot of times they don't have an option, it's their life, it's their job, they can't change that. So how would what would you recommend a shift worker do to try and mitigate the negative impact of, of that type of lifestyle?
1: And that was part of the, kind of the, the reason for doing it is to see because I get a lot of questions, I'm a shift worker, I work late nights, yeah. and I no matter what I do I cannot lose weight, why? And right. so I think very similar to the people who are metabolically sick, If you're in a situation where you're a night shift worker, you probably have to be a little bit more strict in terms of being in ketosis. At that point, I think getting your circadian rhythm as best as you can is is extremely important. So getting sun exposure during the day, uh, making sure that when you are sleeping it's quality sleep that's being tracked so you know, focusing on some of the other biohacks to really kind of help in terms of pushing the envelope in your favor because you have this major kind of obstacle which is Sleep, which is affecting your cortisol, which is affecting your hunger levels, which is also affecting your desire for craving carbohydrates. Right, and so it's it's extremely extremely difficult, I think, for night shift. Yeah.
0: so we've talked about sun exposure a couple of times, and one of the things that I think is interesting looking at the the data for sun exposure. Yep it's hard to come up with the perfect level, right? Right. Like ideally we would just be outside and play and have fun and and get good sun exposure, but like you said, it's not happening. So uh, what I've read, it seems like 20 minutes of... Whole body exposure, not just like face, head, hands, but twenty minutes of whole body exposure seems to be sort of like the the minimum threshold that people should be shooting for. You know, people like maximum benefit for minimal effort. So is that sort of what you recommend too, or do you have a number in mind that you use?
1: Yeah, I agree with you, and I think you know the data is not that strong either way. But I would say twenty minutes. Hopefully, people after this are not going out in their front yard, you know, fully naked, getting sun exposure. But I think 20 minutes and also the timing of the day is important. So ideally, you know noontime would be the best getting maximum exposure but not getting too much where then you're at higher risk of skin cancer.
0: Right. That's the balance. And that's why you know for people like us who were outside a lot with our athletics, but yet for me at least that doesn't count for sun exposure because right. I have a hat or helmet, I've got you know long sleeves and long pants and I'm not getting my sun exposure despite being outside and that's an important concept to remember. You're like, oh, I'm outside plenty, I don't need to worry about that. Well, yeah, a lot of times you yeah. still do. A
1: lot of times. Yeah, yeah,
0: but there is that balance.
1: Right, and and I think doing it in a way where it's, it's part of your routine, so I think even if you work, let's say, going outside for lunch, getting some exposure, rolling up your sleeves would be at, you know, a good way to at least get some sun exposure, right. at least get some vitamin D production. Um, but otherwise, yeah, I mean 20 minutes I think is probably ideal.
0: And what I love about that is it's free, no yeah. gadgets, right. no, no, you don't need anything, you just Correct. walk outside. Yeah. Now I see you have two rings on. Yes, and, married
1: uh, only once.
0: Yes. And then the other I su- assume is an aura ring. Yes, correct. Yeah. So now we get into the gadgets, mm-hmm. a little bit you know more expensive. Yes. Um, and technology. Some people love it; they they get into the technology and they want more and more. And some people kind of hesitant and and afraid of the technology. So,
1: yep.
0: is is Oura ring sort of w- one of your basic go to technologies that you recommend?
1: Yeah, and I don't have any affiliation with aura mm-hmm. ring, but I I think, uh, for me, I'm more of a data person. I probably should have been an engineer, like most of the other. <laughs> Uh, speakers, but um, I think data for me helps drive uh, changes in our behavior. So, for instance, I know I get instant feedback from, let's say, I eat later at night, which for me I notice would cause certain certain things. So, I wouldn't have the deep, the REM sleep at levels that I would want to get the restorative sleep. I would notice that my resting heart rate would take a lot longer to come down, which makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would notice that the quality of sleep was not good, yeah. and so changing, you know, timing of diet for me was based on sleep patterns, and fasting glucose, but but mm-hmm. mostly sleep patterns. So I do think there is a balance because there is so much technology. Um, which ones are going to be the most effective? In my opinion, after nutrition, I would say sleep is the second most important factor in in health, um, whether or not that's science based or not. Um, just my clinical experience, that's what I've noticed. So I think, yes, there's a cost associated with it, but the amount of feedback that you get to me is tremendous. Now there's a lot of other gadgets out there I wouldn't spend a dime on. Right. And so there is this balance of trying to figure out which ones are going to be useful versus which ones are just going to be for fun to show you have a new gadget. Right. Yeah. And,
0: and, and can we do it in other ways? You know, if you drink, have too much alcohol one night or eat too late, It's gonna affect your sleep. You know that. You don't need a gadget to to know that. But if you want to, I guess if you want to fine tune it to more uh, more detailed or less obvious causes, then maybe then the gadget comes into play. Then.
1: So for most people that I work with, they're really looking for that extra edge. I guess in terms of whether or not to improve cognition, so that they're more successful in business. Um, For them, those little changes do make a difference. Okay. But at the same time, it's not a question of just using the data and focusing solely on the data and making changes to improve the data. It's using it as as a tool, kind of like you would use lab markers as a tool. You could run a plethora of labs that, you know, might impress people, but are you going to use those? Are they going to be useful for you or is it just going to be an added cost? And so I think it's really Mm -hmm. weighing that balance of you know, based on your clinical experience, what's going to benefit you?
0: Yeah, that's a great point that you bring up about the labs because I think it's pretty clear in uh, contemporary medical practice, they're just scratching the surface of what's right. available in labs, like no one's checking fasting insulin, hardly right. uh, advanced lipid testing. But yet on the other side you have some doctors and practitioners who just check thousands of dollars of labs, most of which is not going to have much of an impact so you've got to find that middle ground as well and the same for technological mm-hmm. information with our biohacking or, absolutely. or our lifestyle absolutely yeah.
1: when I started I was the doctor who would check you know plethora of labs yeah. and I don't even know what half the labs were in terms of interpreting <laughs> no but but I think also as you gain experience you realize you need less. Um, Test, but you need them to be very specific to what you're looking for. And so, same thing I think applies with uh, technology. Um, You know, I would rather spend money on something that I think is going to beneficially impact my health, and it's going to give me data to do that. But I wouldn't spend money on something that I think is just uh, you know another gadget.
0: Right. Like simple sleep hacks could be yeah. just a eye mask and, right. you know, ten bucks for an eye mask right. and or less. And you don't need the multiple hundred dollar Tom Brady smart pajamas <laughs> for your sleep hacking. I'll take
1: one, but no. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> is he sleep is he selling those?
0: Yeah. I saw I it was uh. I think maybe it was last year. I don't know if they <laughs> if they survived or not, but they were these smart that's pajamas that's supposed to uh yeah. you know, tell you how much you're moving and your respirations and so forth and right. uh
1: yeah. yeah. I mean you can get on the extreme where it's, you know, uh a lot of kind of fad tools that are not useful. Yeah. But they so sound good.
0: One yeah. fad tool or one tool that seems like it could be a fad and others um swear by it is yeah.
1: saunas. Yes.
0: Um and when people think of a sauna, they probably think of you go to the gym and then you sit in the sauna and you sweat it out a little bit and release the toxins as some people say, right, right, sweat out the toxins. Right, right, right. But now it's taken on a whole new meaning, uh, right. infrared saunas, regular saunas, people are buying saunas for their houses. Yep. So again, it, it gets into that next level of this isn't necessarily for everybody. But is does the science back up the investment? And some people clearly say yes, yeah. so I'm curious to get your opinion on that.
1: So it depends, I think, on what your your goals are. So in terms of the, most of the science that's come out on sauna, it's from Scandinavian, from mostly from Finnish uh, countries, but that data is really looking at cardiovascular health for the most part. And, and there are some other studies that look at kind of impact on cortisol levels, on fasting insulin, on heat shock proteins. So there is data that's coming out and I think one of the exciting things about the biohacking uh, kind of world now is that a lot of research is being done to really... Find out is there actually a basis to this, and the studies that look at cardiovascular health are, are in my opinion, are pretty impressive. Um, it, does that merit a you know four or five thousand dollar investment? Probably not for most people. Yeah. Again, going back to cost and cost being cost effective, I think most people have a gym membership, whether they use it or not is is a different story. But most gyms are going to have a sauna, and so. You had asked me a question before we got online as far as biohacks and the way I look at it is, number one, is it going to be effective? Number two, is it going to be safe? Are there any you know downsides as far as doing it? And then is it going to be applicable to people? I think when you look at sauna, um, is it effective? I think it's effective. Uh, I think in terms of a lot of people I work with really focusing on getting their fasting insulin as suppressed as possible, Sauna helps with that. Does it? Yep. So it increases a couple of things, but it increases uh insulin sensitivity in the skeletal muscles. And so if you can actually impact insulin, fasting glucose, can you impact them metabolically? And I would say that you can. Yeah. Is there a downside? Is there a risk involved with it? Sure, for certain people, if you're elderly, if maybe you have some cardiac arrhythmias, and you get dehydrated, sure. But in general, I would say it's a safe modality that has been used for, you know, centuries? Uh, And then is it applicable? And I think for most people if they use a gym membership they can go to their gym sauna, they don't have to have a huge cost expenditure for that. Um, And it it helps I think for a lot of people who use it.
0: Now I'd hate for someone to hear that and say like, oh, I don't have to worry about my nutrition, I just have to go hit the sauna and improve my insulin sensitivity. So. I'd imagine the impact it has is a a fraction of what it would be for nutrition or fasting or time-restricted eating. So it would be, again, taking someone at the good level and trying to get them to a little bit higher level.
1: Correct, yeah. Again, in pretty much any talk that I give I will say nutrition is... I hate to use the uh, image of a pyramid just because it's been butchered. <laughs> the food pyramid, the, is yeah. Butchered. But uh, we'll call it the you know keto hacking. I don't know uh, uh, pyramid. But the base is going to be nutrition. Yeah. And and obviously, you're in my experience, low carb keto is going to be for the majority of people. Then it's really getting to that next level in terms of optimizing your health. You know, a lot of people I work with are are interested in living longer but they also want to live longer, uh, healthier, they don't want to be dealing with chronic diseases. right? And so for those people implementing certain biohacks like that um, can help take them to kind of their optimization of what they're looking for. Yeah.
0: And, and to get back to the sauna, though, when you said the outcomes have been for cardiovascular health, is it mostly sort of endothelial health and vasodilatation? And...
1: Right. okay? So that most of the studies have looked at those two specific things right. and then mortality and morbidity which I know you can play with statistics, but um, that's really the focus of most of the, the research.
0: Interesting, but I can't imagine it shows a, a, a mortality difference for no. sauna use. No, yeah. because
1: it's such a short right. study.
0: And so if you were going to recommend somebody use the sauna at their gym since it's there, yeah. Five minutes, ten minutes—is there a threshold? So
1: nineteen minutes is 19 the threshold, okay. apparently. So nineteen uh, minutes, four times a day, is really con- the maximal benefit from that versus the trade-off of yeah. you know diminishing returns. Okay. Yeah.
0: All right. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, the when new technology comes out like that, I think it's so interesting how to in- how to interpret the science and how to incorporate it to see if it works for people. And I like your philosophy does it work right. and is it safe is there a downside that's always a very important question and then is it accessible and something like infrared sauna's i would not recommend people run out and get them no no, no
1: not not at all but yeah. i but something like a you know the question also is do you get more benefit from an infrared sauna versus a dry or wet sauna mm-hmm. i would say the heat is going to be the most important thing raising your core temperature there are some added benefits from infrared um, but Again, is it worth the four thousand dollar investment? Yeah. I would say most people would say no.
0: Right, but in biohacking circles, that's what a lot of people are promoting sure. these uh, these amazing technologies that are are sort of out of reach for the most people.
1: Right, which yeah. doesn't make sense. Yeah.
0: Well, we've talked a lot. Uh, we've touched on a lot of topics here, and I want to just touch on one more thing because. I, you're a big family man. Yes. And and I really appreciate that personally, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners do as well. But you're taking a little bit different approach on how you're raising your family and living your life. You're taking sort of a nomadic approach to things. Yeah. yeah. Uh, tell, tell me briefly about that.
1: I've always uh, been a big traveler. I mean, I've traveled uh, all over the world. I was fortunate enough um, to be raised by parents who love to travel. And um, I want to have my children have that same experience To I think in a, in a time where especially in the United States we're so polarized, uh, we see things extremely different. Um, I think you can learn a lot about our country but also about people um, by being with them in different experiences, by learning you know what's kind of driving their understanding of politics or religion or health and showing how different parts of the country are going to experience a low-carb or ketogenic uh, diet differently based on resources, based on socioeconomic status, right. um, based on culturally. So obviously people in the South are going to have different cultural norms than people in the Northeast and, and yet we can all do uh, some version of low-carb or keto but a little bit differently and I want to show how that's possible and maybe educate more people along the way.
0: That's fantastic. Yeah. So you're just starting your journey now. Is yeah, right?
1: so next month we'll be going. We're starting in Puerto Rico. Uh, We had a really good experience there, and so um, we're starting there, and then we're going to travel up east coast, over probably north and uh, down the west coast and then in the middle of the country. And then, fingers crossed, but maybe do that in Europe afterwards. Fantastic. I mean, that's such a unique experience. and We'll say, I mean, it sounds good. (laughs) 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 Call me in a month and ask me how I'm doing. Yeah. Um, But, yeah, I think it's very easy to get stuck in kind of the daily routine and uh, you and I kind of talked about this, and, right? but then the question really becomes are we exposing our children to different cultures, to different experiences? I think if we can do that we will be better off as a nation, we will understand each other better, hopefully we get away from kind of the... Um, political swings that we're seeing.
0: Yeah. And and transitions like that and travel like that can be tough on health and nutritional routines because we can talk about routines in a negative side, but we can also talk about routines in a positive side that you you're able to take care of yourself better with sleep habits and nutritional habits. So, it'll be interesting to see how you how you come up with more hacks for that. And I...
1: Yeah, luckily I've been traveling for, you know, quite some time and so I've come up with hacks for myself, but it's a different story when you have three little children who are, you know, hungry and right. want something different than um, boiled eggs and, you know, uh, <laughs> an avocado or something. Right. So, it's definitely an experience, but it's also a way to show other people who are were dealing with uh children and maybe how to actually transition them over to more of a low carb um version. I know that's a big struggle for many families. Right. Is they are car- they are low carb, they've seen the benefits, but to transition their children And they don't have to be ketogenic, but to maybe transition them over from the junk processed food. How do you do that? How do you do it when you travel? I think those are uh, topics that are always being brought up.
0: Right, and the age of the kids matters too. I imagine in teenage years it can get a little more challenging as you need to assert their independence. Right,
1: we gotta wait. We have to do it now before they're taller than we are. <laughs> <Before they're laughs> yes. right? That's the goal because once they're taller, um, you know, all, all bets are off.
0: Right. Don't make it a power struggle but <laughs> right. make it a teaching. Right. And, exactly,
1: yeah. make it an adventure. We we label it as an adventure and I think at this point they see it that way and uh, hopefully they'll have good memories and it will help them mature as, as good human beings. Right, yeah.
0: that's what's important. All right. Well, Dr. John Lemansky, thanks so much for joining me. Where can people learn more about you?
1: Um, yeah, biohackmd.com and then social media, biohackmd is most of it. Great. So, well, yeah. thanks for joining me it's on the Diet pleasure. Doctor Podcast. Yeah, thank All you right. so much.